all good things must come to an end. You're probably familiar with that expression. We tend to say it at the end of enjoyable experiences, holidays, for example. Maybe you can think of a particular day or an evening that you spent in a beautiful spot in good company. Those are the kind of moments where we sigh and we say to each other, all good things must come to an end. We also say it at the end of people's careers. We say it at the end of people's lives. It was great while it lasted, but now it's finished. And it will soon be forgotten. Or at best, it will be just a nice memory. And this morning, as we look together at Jesus on the cross, we might be tempted to think something similar. Jesus' life was great while it lasted. He did so much good. He made such an impact. But all good things must come to an end. And here, as he dies on the cross, surely a good thing is coming to an end. In fact, as he dies, Jesus himself says, it is finished. It seems like the end. But we're going to see Jesus did not use the word finished to mean over and done with. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it is accomplished. Jesus knew his death was achieving wonderful things that would never come to an end. So turn with me to John chapter 19. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1087. Or in the larger print Bibles, 1683. We're going to pick up in the middle of verse 16 of John 19, and we'll read down to verse 30. It's been a couple of weeks since we've looked at John's gospel, so we're picking up this morning at the point where the Roman governor Pilate has finally caved in to pressure from the Jewish leaders and sitting on his judge's seat, Pilate has condemned Jesus to an unjust death. Jesus will be crucified on the charge of treason. He will be condemned for setting himself up as a rival to Caesar. And in the middle of verse 16, we read, after Pilate has passed judgment, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. 
When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is God's word. And it tells us four things. On the cross, Jesus accomplished the work that displays his kingship to the world. He accomplished the work that delivers the everlasting salvation anticipated in the Old Testament. He accomplishes the work that creates a new family united by his love. And he accomplishes the work that quenches our deepest thirst. First in verses 16 to 22. On the cross, Jesus accomplished the work that displays his kingship to the world. Verse 17 tells us Jesus was carrying his own cross. And that means the shorter of the two pieces that make up the cross. The horizontal bar or the cross piece. Usually the upright beam of wood would already be in the ground at the crucifixion site. The victim would be either tied or kneeled to the horizontal bar, which was then hoisted up and fastened to the vertical beam with the victim attached to it. Now by this stage, it seems Jesus has already received two beatings. The second one was the most brutal of the two, Historians tell us it was so brutal that those who were subjected to it sometimes died from it. Jesus is not dead, but he is severely weakened. And the other Gospels tell us at some point on the walk to the crucifixion site, Jesus is too weak to carry the crossbeam. The soldiers force a man called Simon from Cyrene to carry it the rest of the way. John chooses not to include that detail because he wants us to see something else. John wants us to see how the crucifixion of Jesus actually worked against the aims and intentions of Jesus' enemies. Verse 18 tells us Jesus is hung on the middle cross of three, 
That in itself makes him the most prominent of the three. And the notice fastened to his cross increases Jesus' prominence even more. If you look again at verse 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. We've seen in previous weeks that Pilate found no basis for a charge against Jesus, and he made several attempts to release Jesus. But eventually, Pilate found himself under so much pressure from the Jewish leaders that he agreed to condemn Jesus on the charge of treason. Pilate has given the Jewish leaders what they want, and now he's taking some revenge on them. You can see that in verse 21. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Remember, this is Passover time. Jerusalem is crammed with people from all over the world. They've come to celebrate Passover. And now, Jesus is being proclaimed to those people as the King of the Jews. It's humiliating for the Jewish leaders to have this broken, wretched man proclaimed as their king. They instigated this situation. They insisted on Jesus' death, but now it has turned into a big announcement of Roman power and Jewish weakness. And notice the detail in verse 20. The sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Aramaic was the local language. It was the dialect of Hebrew that was spoken in Palestine at that time. Latin was the official language. And Greek was the language used internationally. So wherever you came from, you would be able to read this proclamation of Jesus' kingship. And because visitors to Jerusalem will shortly be returning to the places they came from, Jesus' kingship is being proclaimed to the world here. Of course, that's not what Pilate intended when he had the notice written. He intended it as revenge on the Jews. And when the Jewish leaders presented Jesus to Pilate as a king, they didn't intend his kingship to be proclaimed to the world. They just wanted to get rid of him. But here, God is taking the intentions of Pilate and the Jewish leaders, and God is using them to bring about his own purposes. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus announced, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus was talking there about his death. And when we looked at that passage, we saw that Jesus does not mean he will draw all people without exception to himself. No, he makes it clear that many people will reject him. All people means all people without distinction. All kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of places. And here, as Jesus is lifted up on the cross with this notice in three languages, 
Jesus' Father in heaven is using the evil intentions of the Jewish leaders. He's using the bitter intentions of Pilate to proclaim Jesus' kingship to all people. And for those willing to stop and consider, there's an obvious question to ask. What kind of king is this? A king whose crown is a crown of thorns? A king whose throne is a cross? What kind of king is this who is displayed to the world in utter humiliation? Naked, broken, dying. Well, later on, the first Christians understood the answer to those questions. They were able to say, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. As Jesus hung on the cross under a notice proclaiming his kingship, many turned away in disgust from what they saw. Many considered the whole situation to be foolishness. But many others came to realize this crucified king is where we find God's wisdom and God's power. The kingdom of this king comes through not the suffering and death of his enemies. The kingdom of this king comes through his own suffering and death. Those who enter his kingdom enter by worshiping this crucified king. They enter by trusting in his self-sacrifice on the cross. On the cross, Jesus accomplished the work that displays his kingship to the world. And today, when men, women, and children come to Jesus, it is this Jesus they are coming to. Jesus, the king who humbled himself to death. Yes, today he is risen, he's exalted, he's reigning. But he reigns as the crucified one. He will never cease to be the crucified one. And that will never cease to be the foundation of our hope. Our hope will always rest on this truth. That he's the king who was crucified for us. That good thing will never come to an end. And closely connected to this, on the cross, Jesus accomplished the work that delivers the everlasting salvation anticipated in the Old Testament. When we consider what's going on with the cross, we mustn't think that God left people to figure it out on their own. We mustn't think there were no clues to help people figure out what was going on. The Old Testament is full of clues. It's full of anticipations of what's going on here. John wants us to see that in the details he gives us next. If you look at verse 23. 
When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. It was standard practice for the executioners to have the executed person's clothes. And we're not supposed to think that they tear up all of his clothes except his undergarment here. There were four soldiers. Presumably, one of them had Jesus' outer robe. One of them had his headscarf. One of them had his sandals. And one had his belt. And it would have made sense for them to divide up the material of the last remaining item. A tunic that was worn next to the skin. Here it's called an undergarment. Normally, to divide it fairly, the soldiers would each have had a piece of the material. But because this one is such a good item, it's woven in one piece, they decide that instead of tearing it up, they will cast lots for it. So they do something like drawing straws or rolling dice to see which one gets it. Now, it is highly unlikely these Roman soldiers knew the Old Testament Scriptures. And if they did know them at all, it's even more unlikely they would do this intending to fulfill an obscure verse from the Old Testament. These men are just doing what they want to do. But John, who is writing this, does know the Old Testament. And remember the promise Jesus made to these disciples. Jesus said that after he returned to heaven, he would send the Holy Spirit who would guide John and the other disciples into all the truth. And here is one of the outcomes of that work of the Holy Spirit. John points here to a connection with Psalm 22, which we read together earlier. A verse from Psalm 22 is quoted here in verse 24. Psalm 22, as we heard, is a prayer of anguish. It was written by David. David was God's anointed king in the Old Testament. David was God's Messiah in the Old Testament. And in Psalm 22, David speaks of terrible personal suffering. He speaks of his body being broken And he speaks of his clothes being divided up by lot. But that psalm of suffering ends with salvation. God raises his Messiah up from that suffering. And after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, as John sat down to write his eyewitness account, as he reflected on this incident of the soldiers dividing up Jesus' clothes and casting lots for the tunic, The Holy Spirit enabled John to see the whole of Psalm 22 was an anticipation of what happened on the cross. Not just the little detail about the clothes, but the suffering of the Messiah and God's salvation on the other side of that suffering. All of that was pointing forward to what Jesus would do. 
on the cross, Jesus was delivering the reality that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. One other little detail to notice about this. In the Old Testament, David's predecessor, Saul, had the kingdom torn away from him. That happened because of Saul's disobedience to God. And that tearing away of the kingdom was symbolized very vividly in the tearing of a robe. If you want to look at that, you can read it later in 1 Samuel 15. As King Saul stood with the torn robe in his hands, the prophet Samuel said, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you today. But later, when David was crowned king, God made a promise. God said that one of David's descendants would reign as king, and the kingdom would never be torn away from him as it was torn away from Saul. And now, here in John 19, as the soldiers roll their dice at the foot of the cross, the ancient symbolism returns, underlining the ancient promise. Jesus' robe is not torn. Yes, he's dying in agony. He's scorned or pitied by many who look at him. But this descendant of David is God's anointed king. He is coming into a kingdom that will never be torn away from him. Through Jesus' suffering and death, God is bringing an eternal kingdom of salvation. And so at the cross, the robe remains untorn. We've just seen two examples of how what was anticipated in the Old Testament is being accomplished on the cross. There are many, many more. And John will mention more of them as we go on. But the point already is clear enough. What is going on here is not random. It's not meaningless. It's not a case of God scrambling to try and react to what Jesus' enemies are doing. No, what's going on here is filled with deep meaning and significance. It is filled with eternal meaning and significance. Here on the cross, through this broken, bleeding king, a whole history of anticipation is being fulfilled. God's long-expected salvation is being achieved. And there's more. On the cross, Jesus accomplished the work that creates a new family, united by his love. Look at verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. We've noticed before, the disciple Jesus loved is almost certainly John himself, the author of this book. He never refers to himself by name. 
Instead, each time he enters the story, he chooses to record his amazement that he is loved by Jesus. And John is not implying he's the only one Jesus loved. He's simply registering his thankfulness that he is loved by Jesus. And at one level here, what Jesus does shows his incredible love. On the cross, every breath Jesus took was excruciating. The effort to get air into his lungs meant he had to push with his legs to lift his body up a little bit. And that caused the nails to cut a wider wound into his feet. And yet in the midst of that, Jesus is thinking of his mother. He's making provision for his mother. It seems that Mary's husband Joseph is dead by this point. And at this stage, we know Jesus' brothers are not sympathetic to him at all. Presumably, they're not going to support Mary's own commitment to live as a follower of Jesus. And so John gives his mother into, Jesus gives his mother into John's care. One writer has said, in the moment when the salvation of the world hangs in the balance, Jesus is thinking of the loneliness of his mother. That tells us Jesus is a personal king. He's a personal savior. Jesus is not like so many kings and saviors who get so wrapped up in their high position or their high ideals that they forget the needs and concerns of the individual. They cease to be concerned about the little people. Jesus is not like that. Of course, Jesus cares about the huge cosmic work of achieving salvation for humanity. Of course he does. On the cross, he's fighting the decisive battle against Satan and all the powers of evil. And at the very same time, Jesus cares about this one distraught woman standing at the foot of the cross. And Jesus is the same today. He cares about each woman, each man, each child. He cares about their personal burdens and pains. He cares about their personal hopes and aspirations. Jesus cares about you. However small you might feel, however unnoticed, Jesus cares about you. And there's still another level to this. Because Jesus is putting something in place here that will impact not just Mary and John. Here, Jesus is creating a new family. During his years on earth, Jesus loved his mother. He loved John. He loved his other disciples. And that love will continue forever. But from now on, Mary and John and the others will not experience Jesus' love 
in the same way they did before. Jesus' love will come to them through the love they show to each other. So this is not Jesus handing off Mary to John. It's as if it's not as if Jesus is saying to John, she's not my responsibility anymore. No, Jesus is not ending his bond of love with Mary. This is Jesus setting up a new family where his love will be expressed through the love those family members express for one another. Jesus' love will be experienced in the love of that family. So here at the foot of the cross, we have the church of Jesus Christ in miniature. Jesus is dying on the cross not just to save a bunch of individuals. He's dying to save individuals and unite them into a loving community. It's important to realize what this means. It means that here in the church today, it's not so much that we're trying to show our love for one another. In the church, we're seeking to show the love of Jesus to one another. There is a difference. It makes a difference when we look at one another and ask ourselves not, how do I feel about this person? But how does Jesus feel about them? Or if you don't like the word feel, put it a different way. We're not asking, how committed am I to this person? We're asking, how committed is Jesus to this person? And when we show love to that person, it's because however we feel about them, we know that Jesus loves them. We know that he is committed to them. In this family, when our love for each other runs out, we keep on loving one another for Jesus' sake. We love that brother or sister because Jesus loves them. This is a family built on his love not on ours. So, if there's someone here, as you look around, if there's someone here you have trouble showing love and concern for, then start looking at them differently. Jesus loves that person. He is concerned about that person. And he's given you the job of delivering his love and concern to them. Just like he did here on the cross with John and Mary. This family, it's not like any organization on earth. In the church, of course, we do certain things to organize ourselves, but we are not an organization. We're a family. And family members don't choose one another. We become family through birth. And here, not just through his words on the cross, but supremely through his work on the cross, 
Jesus is bringing to birth a new family, united in the salvation he won at the cross. Later this year, we'll celebrate the 50th anniversary of this local church here in Pelsall. But the church of Jesus Christ is 2,000 years old. It began here on the cross. Our unity was accomplished here on the cross by Jesus' work of saving love. And if we are going to continue, if we're going to flourish as a local church here in Pelsall, we have to keep in mind who we are. We're not a club united by a common interest. We're not an organization united by a common strategy. We are a family united by Jesus' love. Finally, look at verses 28 to 30. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Again, in verse 28, John mentions Scripture being fulfilled. Earlier, we saw a connection with Psalm 22. Well, in that Psalm, God's Messiah says, My mouth is dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Psalm 69 is another Psalm of David. Remember, he was God's Messiah in the Old Testament. And there, David speaks about his enemies giving him vinegar for his thirst. John may well have both those passages in mind here when he speaks about Scripture being fulfilled. But what about Jesus himself? When Jesus says, I thirst, has he been searching through his memory to figure out what he needs to say next to fulfill Scripture? No, Jesus is genuinely thirsty. He's been severely beaten He's bleeding. He's been hanging for hours in the searing heat of the sun. He's dehydrated. He is thirsty. This is a cry of pain and suffering. And this is more evidence that Jesus is the suffering king foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Jesus' cry is more evidence that all of this is in the eternal design and plan of God himself. If you remember, Jesus started his public ministry at a wedding in Cana. The wine ran out at that wedding, and Jesus stepped in to provide the best wine. That wine not only saved the bridegroom's blushes, it was also a picture of the satisfying blessings of Jesus' kingdom. Later on in his ministry, Jesus offered living water to those who would believe in him. He said those who drank that living water would never thirst again. 
But here on the cross, the one who provides living water, the one who provides the best wine, he cries out with thirst. And he's given not refreshing water, not rich wine. Jesus is given wine vinegar. Cheap, sour wine that was used by the Roman soldiers. On the cross, Jesus drinks bitter wine. And we know, besides the bitter wine on that sponge, Jesus is also drinking the unimaginably bitter cup of God's wrath against human sin. Jesus drinks it all down to the last drop. And he does it because that's the only way you and I could enjoy the satisfying refreshment of his kingdom. Jesus cries out in thirst. He drinks the bitter wine so the thirst in our soul can be satisfied. On the cross, Jesus accomplished the work that quenches our deepest thirst. And when that work was finished, when Jesus had accomplished all he came to accomplish, verse 30 says, he gave up his spirit. No one took his life from him. He laid it down willingly for our salvation, for our eternal satisfaction. It is generally true that all good things must come to an end. But it is not true when it comes to Jesus' work on the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, he knew his completed work set in motion salvation and satisfaction that will never end. So as we come to share the Lord's Supper this morning, let's give thanks to God for the work Jesus finished on the cross. Let's give thanks for the never-ending blessings that flow from his finished work. We'll take a few moments to do that quietly, but before we share the bread and wine together, we're going to sing a song that is full of what Jesus achieved and accomplished on the cross. We're going to sing, Yes, finished, the Messiah dies.